was a great song to lead into today's sermon. I will build my life upon your word. Uh, it's our firm foundation because that's really what this text is about today. And we're back in the book of John. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. If you remember last week, if you were here, there were different opinions about who Jesus was. And it's funny how we can look at the same thing and see two different things, right? Like you've seen these before, these pictures, like these, these illusions um, where you look at a picture and one person's like, well, I see like a, this young cowboy with his head turned to the side and like others, like I see this old person or the young lady on the right or the old person. And these are pretty common. So most of you can make out both of those images. Some of them get a little harder like this one. Maybe you don't see that one. Maybe you just see dots. I just see dots. It's just dots. Anybody see anything besides dots there? What do you see? Yep, Michael, Michael Jackson, right. Yeah, I think, that you, can anybody not see that? All right, you're like, huh, I don't see that at all. But there's uh, these pictures where you can view and see totally different things. Well, as the people are looking at Jesus, some of them are saying, man, he, he's, a, he's a great person. He's this incredible man. And that the, the other people, hearing the same words, seeing the same things, they're saying, no, he's a liar. Jesus is a liar, and he's leading people astray. And so Jesus is the ultimate divider. People have strong opinions about Jesus. Rarely do you find anybody who is indifferent about Jesus. Everybody has a strong opinion about him, and they still do. And so we're going to see that in the gospel, and we're also going to talk about that in our own life, and our own uh, just everyday existence, how that Jesus is a divider. So we're in John chapter 7, and we're going to be in verses 14 through 24. So let's pray, and then we'll get into this text. Father God, I thank you for your word that is our firm foundation. It's our anchor. And God, uh, the world and the way the world operates is confusing. God, it's so easy to find ourselves running after this or that conspiracy theory or belief or trust or doubt or fear. And God, we begin to question uh, the world that we live in and, and question whether you're in control or not and keep take our eyes off you, God. I pray today will be a reminder of how you use your word to bring us to you, to point us to you, Jesus. And I pray today that we will uh, align ourselves with you and see areas of our life where we're not aligned. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So last week, again, let me just catch you up. Last week, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles is about to take place in Jerusalem. And so Jesus' brothers come to him and they say, okay, Jesus, this is the time now that you need to come with us and you need to tell the religious leaders of the day, you need to tell these people who you are. And his brothers don't believe him, but they're frustrated because Jesus is out in Galilee, which is definitely not the place where someone who wants to make a big impact in that culture would have been. They would have been in Jerusalem. That's where the action was. That's where the people that mattered lived. But Jesus was out doing his works and staying away from Jerusalem, and we saw that was for his father's will. His father was keeping him there for a reason. But this Feast of Booths was going to go on, and every male was required to go to Jerusalem for this. And as I mentioned last week, families would go together. Big groups of families would go together and take this pilgrimage to Jerusalem as a huge group, but Jesus tells his brothers, I'm not going with you. I'm not going with you. We're not, I'm not going with the group, and he's coming down privately. He's coming down later. And so this 
Feast of Booths or this Feast of Tabernacles was a celebration. It was a great celebration of, of the harvest that God had given the people. And also it was to remember that God provided for them and protected them under Moses' leadership for their 40 years when they were in the wilderness. And so in commemoration of this and in celebration of this, they would set up these makeshift houses, these booths, these tabernacles, so to speak, and they would set these up and they would live in these, uh, these things during the course of the feast. And so the feast was going to go to happen and it would begin, to, and the Jewish leaders were looking around, where's Jesus at? Because Jesus is truly the talk of the town at this point. The, Jesus has been away for six or seven months at least. He's not been in Jerusalem. What's going on? Obviously, like news doesn't travel like it does today. There's a lot of whispering, a lot of hearsay, a lot of gossip, a lot of uh, things that are being said about Jesus. And the people, as they're there, they're whispering about Jesus, and they're asking this question, who do you think Jesus is? And they're doing this as whispers because the religious leaders, they hate Jesus. They want rid of Jesus, and so therefore they don't want the people talking about Jesus. But they're whispering, who is he? Is he a good guy? Is he, is he a liar? Is, he, is there something true about him? Is he fake? And so there's these different views. He's, Jesus is dividing them. And the same thing, as I mentioned, is true today. And I think of verses like 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, where Paul wrote, For the word of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Think about that for a second. It's foolishness. Do you realize that? Those of you who are here today who are committed Christians, you're committed to Christ, much of the world thinks you're foolish. And we need to be okay with that, right? Because in their minds, we are. We're a bunch of people who believe in an invisible God who doesn't exist, and it's dumb to build our life around him. And the fact that we live in a community that's somewhat conservative doesn't make it quite as tough as other places in our country. But nevertheless, for many people in our nation and our world, it's viewed as totally foolish. Now, it's important to remember that two intellectual people can look at the historical narrative of Jesus. They can look at the cross. They can see all the eyewitnesses' accounts. And, and two people can look, two smart people, and one says, I believe... And the other person says, I don't believe that. There's just not enough proof. There's not enough evidence. I, I just would need to be there myself. I need to touch and see it for myself. And so two completely different opinions, foolishness or the power of God. And as we've talked about through this, faith is a gift from God. And so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So faith is by no means natural. Okay, so if, if you struggle with faith, know that it just doesn't come natural for us. In our humanness, naturally, we doubt, we fear, we want to live by our wits, by our experience. Those things come natural to us. Faith isn't anything natural. That's why it has to be a gift from God. Now, there is a lot of misunderstanding of what faith is. Some people think that faith is just wishful thinking. I mean, I just, I hope this is true. I'm really believing it's true without really any tying into any kind of evidence. But faith doesn't ignore evidence. Faith understands that evidence is critical. It's important. We don't just believe things to believe them, but at the end of the day, it comes to a place where you have to place your faith in it, and you have to trust in Christ. So it's not just wishful thinking, and it's not, and this is a false, in the church, this is a false view. If you just believe something so much that God's going to grant that, that's faith, all right? So if you're sick, 
and you just believe hard enough and strong enough, God's going to heal you because you had enough faith, okay? That's not, because what happens inevitably in that situation is when somebody doesn't get healed, then people look at them like in that culture and say, well, you just don't have enough faith, right? If you had more faith and it sets you up for being a loser and somebody comes along and says, let me pray over you and heal you and you're not healed, well, it must be me because I just don't have enough faith. And you see that that's a problem because in Scripture it shows us that faith is about aligning ourselves to God's will. Prayer is about aligning ourselves to what God is doing. So here's what faith is. Faith is knowing that God has not forgotten you regardless of what you're going through. Faith is believing that God is there. He has not forgotten you. He's near to you, and he's doing a very good thing in you even when it doesn't feel like that at all. And he wants to align your will to his will because he's transforming you into a life that's shaped by a radical God-centeredness and he's forming you more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And so he's weaning us off of our self-reliance and he's forming Christ in us. That's what he's doing. And so the question is, can you believe that God is in control even when your life is not in control. Can you? Can you believe that God's in control even when your life seems to be totally out of control? And God is exposing over and over again our self-centeredness. If you'll allow me, just to quote a verse I quote all the time, right? Galatians 2.20, not that verse on the screen, another verse. Galatians 2.20, For I've been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And so he's getting us to the point where I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's radical God-centeredness in our lives. That's faith to trust that. And, and so many times, and I mentioned this back in chapter 6, I love at the end of that narrative, if you tracked along with us in chapter 6, where People begin to abandon Jesus. It's too hard. Your words are too tough. I'm, I'm, they start peeling off. And he looks at his 12 disciples, and Jesus says, are you going to go too? And Peter says, where would we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. Where would we go, Jesus? Have you ever been there in your life? I've been there so many times. Life is terrible. It hurts. It's bad and my faith begins to waver, God, are you really there? Can I really trust you? And then I'm like, Peter, I'm like, where else would I go? And you know that you're in Christ when you get to that situation where you're like, you, only you have the words of eternal life. Only you have the words I can build my firm foundation on. Otherwise, it's just me putting myself in the center, and that's not going to go well at all. Not for this life, and definitely not for eternal life. And so we trust and we build our lives upon the words. Jesus, Peter said, Jesus, only you have the, what's he say? The words, the words of eternal life. So we build our lives upon his word. I love what D.L. Moody once said. He said, I prayed for faith and thought that someday faith would come down and strike me like lightning. But faith did not seem to come. One day I read in the 10th chapter of Romans, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. I had up to this time closed my Bible and prayed for faith. 
I now open my Bible and begin to study, and faith has been growing ever since. That's how we build faith. And so in today's text, we see Jesus standing up, opening Scripture, and teaching people. That's how he was building faith in who he was. Verse 14, so in the middle of this feast of the tabernacle, we're halfway through it, Jesus, he goes into the temple there in Jerusalem, he shows up, he makes himself known, and he begins teaching. He begins teaching. And so Jesus did not come out of seclusion to start doing some good works, do some miracles, although he did those things. He came out and he taught the people. He gave them the word of God. And, the, and here he is speaking. The people are trying, the, the Jewish leadership is trying to destroy him. And so Jesus appears now in Jerusalem. He's bold and he begins to teach them in the temple. And he stood there and explained to them the scriptures. And we know, even though we don't have the content of what exactly his sermon was about here, that he was showing through scripture that it all pointed to himself. And what an amazing thing that Jesus can t- take the word and he can know all those passages in Isaiah and Daniel and passages like that that seem very, very tough to understand. There's a lot of symbolism. And Jesus, being God, can perfectly understand those and explain those things. He knew exactly what these prophecies meant. But look at the reaction of the people. It seems very positive, right? The Jewish leaders. Remember when they say Jews, when John used the term Jews, he was referring to the Jewish leadership, the religious leadership who hated Jesus. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learned when he has never studied? And so God's word is marvelous when it's handled correctly. It's supernatural. It's amazing. And so we see that Think about this. Today, around the world, millions of people are opening this book that's thousands of years old. Every Sunday, you come in here, and we open the Word, and we study, we expound upon the Word. Because there's something marvelous and unique and amazing when this book is handled correctly. And God's Word, of course, is always marvelous, but it can be handled incorrectly and used improperly. And that's scary, because if it's used improperly, it can be devastating, harmful, and even damning to the person who hears and responds to it. I'm going to talk about more of that in a minute. But the fact that these Jews marveled here about Jesus, I don't think it's to be interpreted as if they were giving Jesus some kind of compliment. I don't think this is totally a positive thing here. I think they were surprised by Jesus' knowledge of Scripture, I think they were clearly impressed by the depths of his teaching. But this question they asked, this rhetorical question, how is it that this man has learned when he's never studied? That, I believe, is a demeaning and challenging thing to Jesus. They're saying that he's an uneducated nobody. He doesn't hold any kind of formal religious position, and he has no formal training. Who does this guy think he is anyway? All right, He is not part of our religious system. So I think while there was some compliment there, think of it this way. Think of it like, picture your mind, probably not hard to do. Think of a politician you really don't like, okay? You really, really can't stand, all right? Get that picture in your mind, okay? Whoever it is, think of them, okay? Now think about something that's fairly nonpartisan, okay? Let's say war or like or what's going on in Ukraine. Probably for the most part, 
both Republican, Democrat, and Independents, we can agree, for the most part, this war is a bad thing, right? And it should stop. And so that's something we can agree on. So let's say this person who you don't like at all stands up and they give a speech just on America's position on the war. And they don't get into these other issues that you really hate and despise and reject, but they stick to basically just the war, okay, which you agree with. So they finish up, and you turn to your spouse, and you say, that was okay, but you can't trust that guy, right? He's a, he's a wolf in sheep's clothing, right? He, he, you can't trust a thing. This is just a bigger agenda that he's pulling off here, and he's trying to win us over so he can accomplish something else, all right? So while you can give him some kind of compliment, maybe, by like, okay, yeah, I agree with most of that, but I still hate the dude, right? I still don't like the person. So you get the idea here. While they're maybe saying something positive about Jesus and his skill with the word, which is obvious, I don't really think it's a compliment at all. They hate Jesus. Then verse 16, so Jesus answers them, and you see by his response, they weren't just being like, Jesus, we're really kind of surprised, and we we like the way you're headed. They're not doing that, okay? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. So Jesus is saying that God's word speaks for God when it's handled correctly. God's word speaks for God when it's handled correctly. And nobody could handle the word of God like Jesus, like I said. He knew the mind of the Father perfectly because he was God. He understood exactly what God desired. And being God, he gave all glory to God for his teaching. The religious scholars of the day, the teachers of the day, you know where they found their authority? They found their authority through the scholars, through the intellectual study and the oral traditions of the past. Where does Jesus find his authority? He finds his authority completely in the Holy Spirit and in God's work in what he's saying and doing. He's speaking the very words of God. So you got a contrast here. you got the religious leaders who constantly default to, well, this is what was taught to us, and this is the way that we received this from Moses and on down the line. They're looking through tradition. Jesus says, my words come straight from God. And that's the same that should be true for us as well. While imperfect, that Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4, 11, whoever speaks or teaches should speak the oracles of God, the very words of God. When we quote Scripture accurately and when we expound on it accurately, on its meaning, we're actually speaking the oracles of God. We're speaking the very words of God. Jesus did that perfectly, and he's called the church to do that. He's called us together again and again and again and again here in this place and places around the world where his word is open and it's explained to us. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So you want your faith to be stronger? You hear the word of God. But we know that hearing isn't just hearing. Hearing involves more than that. We'll get to that in a minute. So we have this great responsibility, K-group leaders, teachers, Life you leaders, we have this great responsibility to handle God's word with diligence and with care. James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. I like this quote from the website Got Questions. It says, If teachers fall, they can take many people with them. Therefore, God will judge teachers of the word 
according to the kind of impact they had on those they aspire to lead. What a good reminder. What a great reminder. And Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, he says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So he's telling Timothy, studying the Bible, teaching the Bible is work. It takes effort. And Paul appeals for effort to be made to properly interpret and properly apply God's word. Paul commands Timothy to give diligence, be zealous, to rightly divide the word of truth. The, the picture there, this rightly dividing, is, is, is a farming term. It means cutting the row straight. I'm going to cut it straight. I'm going to give it to you the way that it is, the way it was intended to get, be given. I'm looking at the word and seeing what in its original context to the original here, what is meant, and then how that applies to us today. And so the one who teaches has a great deal of responsibility and are going to be held extra accountable to God in the way that they teach. And when we study and we, we, we apply ourselves, which we should, should be something we do flippantly, then it's not our opinions that matter, but it, we're speaking for God, what God says, and that's what matters. And I think, here, here, this is critically important. Teachers, anybody who aspires to teach, critically important to, to learn. There's two ways you can teach. You can teach for knowledge, or you can teach for love. And 1 Corinthians 13 says that knowledge simply puffs up somebody, just makes us proud. And so when the agenda is, I just want to teach and show you how smart I am and just give you this intellectual dump to your brain, we're missing the point. The Word of God is not to be taught just for knowledge. It's to be taught for love, to build up. Love builds up. Knowledge just puffs up. So teachers, we teach to help people grow in love, love of their Savior, love of the Word, and we teach to see that image of Christ be formed in them more and more and more. That's the purpose, and that's how we teach in love. And one thing is important to remember, I have to remind myself this all the time, that preaching and effective teaching and discipleship is not an event. Okay, it's not. It's not an event. It takes place over time. And patience and faithfulness is what's required. Not expecting a single sermon or a single lesson to do amazing, wonderful things, and somebody's just going to take huge leaps and bounds in their spiritual growth. It's kind of like that meal I've used this before. Like, you know, you ate, a, ate three weeks ago last uh, Friday night, right? You remember that meal you ate three weeks ago Friday night? You probably told your spouse, man, this is the best you've ever made, right? I mean, this is great, but you can't remember. You're scratching your head like, what? I don't remember what I ate, right? So that's the way it is with preaching and teaching the Word of God. And when you turn that around and when the person begins to make it about them, the preacher begins to make it about them, pride and tragedy is a result. And that responsibility that we have as leaders and teachers to teach the very oracles and words of God, we begin to turn it and make it about ourselves. We'll see more about that in, in just a second as well. So Jesus says, what I'm teaching you is God's word. I'm teaching you the very words of God. Then verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether 
I am speaking on my own authority. So Jesus is saying here that those who were listening to him in the crowd as he stood there and he taught them, if they truly, if they knew God, if they knew God and their true desire was to follow God's will, they would recognize Jesus' teaching as coming from God and then they would respond to that. So those who, their hearts are in the right place, who truly desire God and his will, they would respond to Jesus' teaching. They would, their faith would engage with the word of truth, the word of life. And so Jesus used his preaching and his teaching to point people to himself, to God, to his glory, and to encourage and empower and motivate those who are listening. The same is true for us today. God uses preaching and teaching of his word to encourage you, to motivate you, to empower you through the Spirit to do his will. And so if your desire is to do God's will, and as you hear the word of God, then there's just something that clicks there. It, it just makes sense. And, and, and the Holy Spirit just grabs hold of the word, and, and you begin to become more and more like Christ. But here's the problem. So many times we walk into the room, and our minds are so far away. We lost an hour of sleep last night. That was painful, right? I mean, there's lots of other things going on. But the worst thing possible is this unconfessed sin in your life. Unconfessed sin in your life. When you have sin that you're a part of and you're, you're in these activities, but you walk in and you put on a smile and you want to engage with the truth, this unconfessed sin is hindering your relationship with God and your ability to hear accurately the Word of God. One, one church I was in was going through really just just difficult time, and there was a lot of division, a lot of struggles in the church, and there was one man in particular, and he was a deacon in the church, and he was sort of the ringleader of this uh, negative attitude, this push against the, the church and what was going on, and, and, his, and his attitude was terrible, and he wasn't attending church like he should. He said it was because his job was so busy. And yet he finally came back, and I remember the day that he was there, I was sitting nearby, I was watching him. He wouldn't look up the entire time. All he did was look down, stare down at his Bible the entire time. Didn't look up one time during the entire sermon. And in, in my heart, hopefully judging, I found out later judging correctly, but in my heart I thought there's something really wrong there. There's something going on. It's more than just some problems within the church and problems with the church leadership. There's more there. Well, found out later on, this guy was living a lie. He was. He, he had all kinds of this hidden agenda in his life that was happening, this hidden life that was taking place. And so he sat there, and, and he was just resistant to God's Word being taught. And it's easy for the preacher to look at and think, man, what, what's going on? What am I doing wrong? Whereas, who knows what you did last night or Friday night? throughout the weekend. We, you know, I don't know what's causing you not to be able to hear God's Word. And the preacher has responsibility for sure. Study, prepare, train. But it's also your job to make sure your heart is in the right place so you can truly hear God's Word and apply God's Word. The fourth thing we see in verse 18, Jesus points out that preaching God's Word should bring glory to God, not to the preacher. Look at verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. 
But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So Jesus is talking about God's glory. And he's talking about that his whole purpose of coming on this rescue mission to earth and, and, and on the way to the cross, he's marching to the cross, his whole purpose for this is to bring glory to God. His motives are pure. His intentions, of course, are pure. And so the people should understand there's no falsehood there because he's not bringing attention to himself. He's bringing attention to God the Father. The people who were seeking God truly would recognize Jesus and his humility and who he was. They would see that. And I think what really Jesus is doing here, you remember, you got the crowd, you got the religious leaders now. For the first time in six or seven months, he's dealing with them directly. He's talking straight to these, this group of religious leaders. And I think he's exposing them with these statements because they were all about themselves. They were all about their own glory. In fact, Jesus uh, exposes this by, over in Matthew chapter 23 where he says that these religious leaders, they crush people. That's the words that Jesus used. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. And then he says everything they do is for show. So these false leaders, these people who were supposed to be leading the people, they were using God's word for their own purposes they were citing authorities who weren't authorities at all instead of seeking God's authority, and they were leading the people astray, leading them astray. I think in our day and age, it's very important that we, with all the access we have to internet preachers, radio preachers, people we can look at and watch anytime we want, and that's a great thing to just allow ourselves to be filled with God's Word and His teaching through some incredible teachers out there. But also, we need to be astute enough and mature enough to test the preachers or teachers that we're hearing. Um, and here's the best way to do that, is to you to be in the Word yourself, okay? Not just relying on somebody else always feeding you the Word, but you be in the Word and study yourself. It's hard. It's difficult. It takes time. It takes effort. But, <clears throat> excuse me, it's worth it. And you're able then to recognize the false teachers that are out there. A couple other things. Judge by what the Scripture says, of course. Does this teacher, what does he say about Jesus? Does he lift up Jesus? What does he preach about the gospel? Is it Jesus plus something or Jesus plus nothing? Jesus said a, true, I'm sorry, a tree is recognized by its fruit. Is the teacher humble and honest about his own sin, his own weaknesses, his own shortcomings. A preacher who you look at and think, well, they're just like perfect pretty much. I mean, they seem like they just never have any problems. That's probably somebody you should avoid. You want somebody who's humble and willing to be honest about their own struggles with sin. I love this quote by R.C. Sproul. Only the last part of the quote will be on the screen. He says, a hypocrite is someone who does things he claims he does not do. Outside observers of the Christian church see people who profess to be Christians and observe that they sin. Since they see sin in the lives of Christians, they rush to the judgment that therefore these people are hypocrites. If a person claims to be without sin and then demonstrates sin, surely that person is a hypocrite. But for a Christian, simply to demonstrate that he is a sinner does not convict him of hypocrisy. 
And I think it's important to, to understand that. And so if you're pretending to be something you're not, that's hypocrisy. If you're trying to act like you got it together, or you don't do that stuff, or you're talking to a friend and you pretty much act like that you're above that sin or that stuff, that's hypocrisy. But it's not hypocrisy to say, I'm a sinner. I struggle. i got this dual identity. I, I, I do want to do right. I want to pursue God. But there's this part of me that I struggle with sin. And, and depending on the relationship, you can be specific about those things. And get encouragement, get help, get prayer, and get accountability. But be careful not to surround yourself with people who just want to keep it shallow and they want to keep it on the surface. Surround yourself with, with brothers and sisters in Christ who are going to be real and honest. And, and brothers and sisters in Christ who will truly have the right response to adversity. You see, so many people, when things bad happen, even Christians, our default is what was Paul, Paul Tripp referred to yesterday in New Morning Mercies is, is cursing. And he didn't necessarily mean bad word, four-letter word cursing, although that could be part of it. But just when we, we just curse, we just complain, we're agitated, we, we get mad, we, we're negative. And he says, this side of eternity in this broken world, cursing is the default language of the kingdom of self. The kingdom of self reveals itself by when things don't go my way, all I want to do is complain and blame and be angry. Now, all of us, that may be our initial first response, but after we've had time to really realize that's not the way I should respond to that, we back up, we confess it, and we say, okay, I need to see this situation from God's perspective. But those who just are constantly cursing this world, they're showing that their allegiance is to the kingdom of self. But Paul Tripp, he, he, does, he says that mourning something, meaning I'm just grieving over something, that's the default language of the kingdom of God. I'm going to mourn over sin. I'm going to mourn over the brokenness of this world. I'm going to mourn over our political system, how it's not going to fix our problems. I'm going to mourn over the war, war in the Ukraine. I'm going to mourn these things, but I'm not going to curse it because I understand that we're already under a curse, right? The curse already exists, and that's the fall, and these things are inevitable. And like my reading plan yesterday pointed out that these things are signs of the times, that God is showing that these things that are happening in our world are pointing to his return. And, and, and we see these as, God, this is hard. It's tough. I don't want these things to happen. I don't enjoy these things to happen. I'm not denying reality at all, but I'm not going to curse and be mad and angry because life hasn't dealt me the hand that I thought it should because therefore I'm saying that I'm smarter than God and he should do things my way. Rather, I'm going to mourn the things. I'm going to grieve. And that it has to do with praying and seeking God and being an, an agent for change to bring about the positive things, the good things that God wants to do in something rather than just always being negative about things. So will you pay attention to the way that you speak when bad things happen? when things don't go our way, when we view the news, you can, you can mourn or you can curse. You know, and a minute ago when I said, think of a politician you didn't like, some of you, in your mind, you were cursing, right? You were. You're like, I hate, I hate that guy. I hate that woman. You were cursing. You weren't mourning. Let's mourn. Let's not curse. And then the fifth thing we see that Jesus says, simply knowing the Bible doesn't make a person righteous. 
Verse 19, has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keep the law? Why do you seek to kill me? What's Jesus doing? What is he talking about there? The Jews congratulated themselves because they had been chosen to be the recipients of God's law. And there's nothing righteous, Jesus is saying, in and of itself just because you've received the law. Just because God gave you the law, that's no reason to be proud. Obedience to the law is what matters. So Jesus tells him, he just exposes him with a very clear example. He says, look, if you were really about keeping the law, why are you trying to kill me, right? Murder, it's against the law, right? It's, it's, it's not of the law. But how do they respond? The crowd replies, who's trying to kill you, Jesus? Nobody's trying to kill you, Jesus. What Jesus, I think, is doing is pointing back to what he said on the Sermon on the Mount. If you have this anger and this hatred toward me, Jesus is saying, it's the same, it comes from the same spot as murder. And sin is always a matter of the heart before it's a matter of the behavior, right? And so if we're thinking evil and harmful things, if we're cursing, he said, Jesus says it's, it's like murder. It comes from the same spot in the heart as murder. And so the crowd, they're, they're angry. So many of the crowd, they hate him. And they say, Jesus, you got a demon, all right? You, you got a demon, verse 20. Who's trying to kill you? Now, I don't know here whether the crowd is unaware that the religious leaders are really scheming at this point to get rid of Jesus. But regardless, you see their true attitudes coming out. Jesus, you're, you're a liar, and you have a demon. All right, so you, you see the, the hostility. But Jesus, look what he does. He doesn't respond to them in their accusations, but he points to their hypocrisy and their lack of faith. Look at verse 21. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marveled at it. What's he talking about? He's alluding back to chapter 5, where he healed a person on the Sabbath day there in Jerusalem. Look at verse 22. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. So what's he saying? He's saying that these local leaders, these religious leaders, they're hostile toward him, and they're especially hostile over this healing because he did it on the Sabbath day. And so all they want to focus on is Jesus, technically, technicality here, right? Point of order, you broke the law, Jesus. The law doesn't permit us, says the scholars, says our authority that you shouldn't be doing these things on the Sabbath day. And Jesus says, it makes no sense here. Look at verse 23. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, which they did that, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? And so he's saying since circumcision, which symbolizes purification, was done on the Sabbath day, shouldn't an entire person be purified and healed on the Sabbath day? Jesus is showing their hypocrisy. He's showing their lack of faith. He's showing how shallow they are. And then verse 24, he brings it all together. He says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. What he's saying is, your moral and your biblical discernment is flawed. He's saying, as long as you're basing your authority on these oral traditions and these teachers, you're flawed. My teaching, on the other hand, comes straight from God. Your decision-making is all based upon externals and superficial. And you cannot judge rightly because you don't know 
Jesus. You don't know who I am, Jesus says. You don't know God. Your desire isn't to bring glory to God. They don't understand the word of God. And so Jesus hadn't broken the law of Moses, and their hatred for him for breaking the law was really a show of their hypocrisy. You know, and I think what Jesus, in this, this entire dialogue, I think he's really just exposing the leadership. He's exposing the Jewish authorities. Because remember, again, this is the first time he's dealt directly with them in mass, at least, in a while. And so he's showing them that the people are without a shepherd. And they're at this point because they have ungodly leadership who are not feeding them truth. And so the place they've arrived at is all law, there's no love, there's no grace. And so the people are following the leadership that they have in front of them. And again, go back to James. That's why leadership, spiritual leadership, is so critical and so important. So the leadership there in Jerusalem and in Israel, they were not handling God's word correctly. Therefore, they didn't speak for God. They intellectually had memorized much of God's word, but their actions revealed they actually didn't know the truth that they had memorized. The Jewish leaders were glory thieves. They had forsaken God's glory long ago for their own glory. And just because the Jews possessed truth did not mean they really possessed the truth in their hearts. And they judged by external conformity to the law, but their own hearts were hard and they were far from God. That's what Jesus is pointing out in this, in this passage of Scripture. And he says in Matthew as well to them, he says, you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You see, the leaders were not judging with right judgment. They were not judging according to what the word really meant and said. Only he could give it to them perfectly and accurately, but they had left that a long time ago, the desire to know God's word. So Jesus divides. His word divides. His word separates out those who truly want to build their foundations upon Jesus Christ and his word, or those who are just going through the motions or pretending, or those who really don't want Jesus at all. Jesus divides. And I would dare say that your love and value for this word shown through your actions probably indicates where you're at better than anything you might say. So we can talk a good talk, but what does our heart say? Whose side are we on here? Because his words are truth in their life, and we want this truth in his life. And you're here today, that's a great, great sign that you're here for God's word. But I think we need to admit the fickleness of our own hearts. We don't hide. We seek grace from God for long obedience, consistent obedience in the same direction. That's what we want. And so stay faithful. And, and, I, and I put it on the, on the hand side. A Jesus-centered life is made up of Jesus-centered days, plain and simple. You can walk out of here motivated, making promises. But if you look at Wednesday or Thursday or Friday and all those promises have fallen by the wayside, then the truth is you haven't responded the way that God wants you to respond. He wants you to value his word. He wants you to build your life upon his word. And the word points you to Jesus Christ. And our faith isn't in a Bible our faith is in Jesus, the author of this, this book. Let's build our life upon Jesus Christ and his word. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for giving us your truth. 
and all of us would have to admit that we underappreciate your word. We don't value it like we should. And God, many times we can be glory thieves and want life to be all about us. God, help us to come to the point where we truly reckon ourselves to be dead. That we understand that when we came to the cross, we died and our lives are now hid with Christ in you, Father. And God, I pray that the Holy Spirit you've given us will calibrate our conscience and help us to live in a way that's pleasing and honoring to you. God, help us to go to your word for truth and be diligent to study, not just accept what people tell us and speak to us. God, help us to be in the word, knowing your truth and realizing that faith comes by hearing and hearing by your word. In Jesus' name we pray.